So here we are, end of Second Peter. We're wrapping up this letter uh, and really wrapping up the life of Peter. I know some of you have asked, we're going to get there. We're going to get to this biography sort of, we're going to lay down all of Peter's life and what we know uh, about him. Uh, it'll be probably about four weeks when we get there, if everything stays on schedule. Uh, and, and in, in Peter, Peter's finer, final words in, in all of creation here, that's, a, that's what we've got. His, his, the final thing that this apostle says, uh, and, and a call really in this last verse that, that permeates all of our lives, the thing that's supposed to really drive all of us, this thing that wraps up his life is, as we've seen, as we, we trace back, remember that first week, how this give glory to the Lord is something that's supposed to permeate all of our lives. It's supposed to drive everything that we do, this final call and purpose of our life. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word as we are so thankful uh, that I am not up here just giving you thoughts, uh, things that Zach and I sort of divined uh, from the sky or from chicken bones or something like that, uh, that we are just reading God's word and then explaining it and calling us all to, to live it because there is joy and hope even even as Zachary read, even in the rebukes of God's word, there is, uh, there is joy and peace and righteousness. Um, but let's read this final verse of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we have been chewing on this word and this, this call that we've seen is one that you give throughout scripture to, to live for your glory, to, to lay down our lives for your namesake, to, to, to praise the one who has given us life. Father, I pray that as we read this and as we see you tell us to give glory to Christ, uh, that Father, we would see what makes Jesus just so glorious. And Father, I pray that we'd be moved in our hearts to worship him even more, to spend even more of our lives giving more glory to him. Help us understand uh, what it means to give glory to Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we see this last verse here, but, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That we are to give, Peter says, glory to Jesus. And, and who does he say Jesus is? Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's the Christ. That the, the glory that we're supposed to give to God, that talks about over and over in the, New, in the Old Testament, give glory to the one true God. By the mouth of that same God, through the apostle Peter, we are told we're supposed to take that great glory that we give to God and give it to Jesus. But why? Why? What makes Jesus so glorious? And like we said, you could fill books and books with the answer uh, to that. We could write and talk all day about what makes him so great. Uh, what gives him, uh, remember we talked about glory being something that has value and, and honor, that, that weightiness of glory. But Peter, I think, encapsulates what's so glorious about Christ at the very end of of this. Right before he says, to him be the glory, he talks to us about Jesus and he gives him three titles. He gives him the title of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's there's the three titles, Lord, Savior, Christ. And so we've been working through the meaning of those. If those things are supposed to give us, cause us to give Christ glory, then we need to know 
What is so glorious about Jesus being Lord? If, if the fact that Jesus is our Savior is something that gives him glory, then what does the Bible mean when it says he is our Savior? Not what do we mean? What do, what do I mean? What do, we, what, what do we think about that? But what does the Bible say about him being our Savior? When we talk about him being the Christ, what does that mean? What does it mean when we call him Jesus Christ, right? We know that's more than his last name. We know it's a title. We know it's talking about something, but what is it? And so we've been working through those titles. And last week, we began with that first title, Lord, that Jesus is Lord. Now, for a quick refresher, because we're going to be in that word again this week, uh, because if you remember, the word Lord itself uh, does not mean anything necessarily glorious. That, That word was a very common word that you would hear in everyday life. It was the equivalent of the word sir, so that if you flip in your Bibles to John chapter 4, you'll see the woman at the well there, and what does she do when she's talking to Jesus? She calls him sir, right? Sir, you don't don't have any, the well is deep, and you don't have anything to draw it with. It's using the same word that we have here in 2 Peter, right? But it doesn't say to our sir and savior, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, because although that word was a common everyday word there are other uses other meanings behind the word lord that were very glorious it carried a cert of glory a certain sort of glory with them so we looked at the word lord and often just with the capital l uh, and we we saw that that was a term used to speak of someone who is in charge someone who is an owner a, a ruler a king a sovereign someone meant to be obeyed And then last week, we looked at how the word LORD, in in all caps, capital L-O-R-D, was a word used for the name of God. That when the Israelites saw the word Yahweh in the Bible, they thought it was too holy to say, so they would exchange that word. Not not in the written text, right? It was still written Yahweh. They didn't take that out and put uh, Adonai in there or LORD in there. But when they were speaking it, they would say the word Lord. And so we saw that the early church then used that word Lord in the same way. That, that here in Second Peter, that Peter had that view in mind to say, when he says that Jesus is Lord, he is saying that Jesus is the Lord. And all the, the Lord that we saw in the Old Testament, the one who by this time, whose name is too holy to say, that's who Jesus is. And when Peter tells us to give him glory, he's thinking about recognizing the glory, the same type of glory that covered the life of the people in the Old Testament, both, both metaphorically and quite literally the glory that covered the people in the Old Testament. Uh, but like we said, that's not the only glorious use of the word Lord, that the other glory invoking use of that word is to the one we mentioned first off here, when someone is seen as a master, uh, someone is seen as someone who is in charge. This is sort of the idea of he is the Lord of the manor, right? This is the one as, as most of you probably asked your wife to refer to you when people show up, uh, just refer to me as the Lord of the manor, everything will be fine. Uh, that idea is this is the one who's sort of leading things, the, the master, and, and really the two meanings there are tied closely together. That capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, and Jesus, you know, our Lord. The meanings are really close because, think about it, why did the Hebrews choose the word Lord for the word Yahweh? 
Why of all the Hebrew words that they could have chosen, all the titles to give him, why did they think that the appropriate equivocation for Yahweh was the word Lord? Because the word Lord, even without being attached to God's name, is a word of honor. It is a, it is a, it is a word of great significance and, and glory. It is one of the highest honor. It is to say that this person is my master, that, that my life is given in service to them. So when we talk about Jesus as the Lord, we can't separate it, you know, totally cleanly from what it means by someone being a Lord. That Yahweh is called Lord because he is our master, because he is our ruler, our owner, our king. And so when we are called to give glory to Jesus as Lord, it is to give him glory, not just as the one who bears the same, uh, the same name as, as Yahweh, uh, but the one who carries the same honor and glory, the one who has total control of our lives. So, so both of those ideas point to the same big truth, which is that God is our ruler. And so to proclaim Jesus as Lord, Peter's setting up is to proclaim that he is the one in charge of our lives, that he is our master, uh, that it is the glory of one who is greater than us and whose will uh, and command we will follow and to say that Jesus is Lord is to give him not just the the glory due to him being God it is to say that that he is our God he is our master he is the one in control of our lives so let's see the glory given to Jesus not just that he's the Lord but that Jesus is our Lord Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today What does it mean when we say Jesus is Lord? When we say Jesus is our Lord, what's so glorious about Jesus as Lord? The first thing we see is that when you say Jesus is Lord, that is a confession of sorts. When you say Jesus is the Lord of our lives, right? So that's one way that the the term Lord is going to be used in this way in Scripture, that Jesus is our Lord. It is in that a confession of allegiance, That when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we are proclaiming he is the master of our life and that we are then his servants. He is our Lord. He is the one in control of us. We're here to serve him. And that that proclamation is no small thing. In fact, that was a vital part of someone coming to salvation is realizing I no longer serve the Lords that I've been serving. My life is given to my Lord. That at salvation, there's this recognition that I am now to live for the God who has saved me. So you get to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. What does it say there? Because, listen to how essential this is to sharing the gospel with someone. He says, if you confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we know Romans 10, 13, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? We know that. But who is that Lord? Romans 10, 9, Paul tells us that salvation comes through confessing Jesus is Lord. That all who then, if you put those two together, all who call on the name of Jesus as Lord. In salvation, we are recognizing Jesus is king. He is the ruler. And I have not been living that way, but I will now. Right. It is to say he is the owner and master of my life, of my eternity. I am his. 
That is a vital part of the salvation message so that Paul could say, look, yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But when they call on the name of the Lord, what do they say? They say, Jesus is Lord. You are Lord. And I believe that God raised you from the dead. In fact, Jesus Lord is such a powerful part of a salvation reality that the Bible says that phrase is something that really only genuinely saved people can proclaim. So you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. I know you know this because we preached this seven years ago. We did this verse seven years ago. I looked. Uh, you, get to, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. What does it say? He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You see the power that is going to be held in that proclamation, Jesus is Lord. The spiritual battle that is taking place here, he says, only when the Holy Spirit sits in our hearts, only when we have been reborn, will we cry out, Jesus is Lord. Again, we know saying, saying the phrase Jesus is Lord isn't something that saves us. He's saying it's something that you can only do when you have been saved. Without that Holy Spirit in our hearts, we will not willingly and sincerely make that confession. We will not look at our lives and say, you know what? Jesus is Lord of me. Now, we might sing it in a song, right? We might sing songs all day long about how Jesus is Lord and I love it. And I might say, hey, who's Lord? You're like, Jesus is Lord. But only the true believer will be able to mean that when they say it, will be able to confess what is true in their lives, that Jesus is the owner and master and ruler of my life. What it means is that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to understand who Jesus is. The Corinthians, remember, were, were having this debate. Remember what's going on in Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? They were having this debate about who really has the Holy Spirit, remember? And there were some who were saying that the way you knew that someone really had this Holy Spirit is they had these special spiritual gifts. Golly, I wish churches today would read 1 Corinthians. Uh, is that you had these really special gifts and that's how you showed that you really had the Holy Spirit? Um uh, and so some people were then chasing after gifts, Paul said, instead of chasing after God. Instead of trying to seek his glory, they're like, man, well, I need to get these gifts. If these are going to show that I really have the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, look, the Holy Spirit is given to all believers. Well, how can you know that? And Paul says, look, it is only through the Holy Spirit that anyone can even say Jesus is Lord. Those first steps of salvation only happen when the Holy Spirit sits enthroned in our hearts and pulls the words from our once dead, uh, dead stony hearts and gives us life. It is the Holy Spirit that takes us from following the dead gods of this world and calls us to give our lives in service to Christ. We can only say Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, it's not just important because it teaches us about the Holy Spirit, but because it shows us that Paul is saying that Jesus is Lord is one of the most basic and foundational Christian proclamations. He doesn't say that saying Jesus is Lord is something you say after you've gotten all these spiritual gifts. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He can say, you know, everyone's got the Spirit. Why? Because every believer is proclaiming what? Jesus is Lord. 
It's not a certain special set that, is, that has enough Holy Spirit to say Jesus is Lord. It's not a later part in the Christian life that someone starts saying Jesus is Lord. That's a, that would be against the whole point of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've all got the Holy Spirit. Not just these people who have these special gifts. How do you know that, Paul? Because we're all proclaiming the same thing. Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. Satan's not Lord. Sin's not Lord. Caesar's not Lord. There's one Lord, and it is Jesus. Because they all can proclaim that one great truth. And so service to the Lord, Jesus not just being your Lord in word, but in deed, was a marker of genuine salvation, right? Because it's not just saying, you know, when we go up, we don't, and, and I had someone do this one time, and I just watched them as they did it, and I was like, I'm going to need to address that later. They were talking to someone, and they were trying to get them to be a Christian, and the person was like, yeah, uh, okay, I believe, and they were like, all right, you want to prove it? And they were like, sure, and they said, say Jesus is Lord. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they said, now let me read this Bible verse. It says, you can't say that except by the Holy Spirit. And I was just like, drive on, drive on. Give me your number. I'll call you later. Uh, Because it's not saying, it's not just saying that those words can't come out of your mouth, right? Uh, Except by the Holy Spirit. What it's saying is no one can genuinely and sincerely say that. But the sincerity is not just seen in speech. The proclamation that Jesus is Lord is one seen in your life. Because any of us can go around and say, Jesus, Lord, I doubt in the United States, especially here in the, you know, the buckle of the Bible belt, there might even be some atheists that you go around and say, Jesus, Lord, like, sure, whatever. Uh, Everyone knows to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. So the Bible, when it says that Jesus is Lord, it's not just a verbal proclamation. It's saying in our lives, we will show that Jesus is Lord. He won't just be, he won't just be Lord like we're giving lip service so we don't get in trouble. Like we would do with our parents, right? I know I'm supposed to say, yes, sir. But in my head, I am not thinking, yes, sir. In my head, I'm thinking lots of things that if you knew the rod, or in my case, the leather belt of discipline uh, would come out and and find me. Uh, But uh, so I knew what I was supposed to say and I would say that, but that isn't what I meant. Uh, in the same way, it's not just that Jesus is Lord that we're afraid to get in trouble. Jesus is Lord is a genuine uh, desire of our hearts. And it's the way that we, that we live. In fact, the Bible tells us if someone is truly saved, they won't just say Jesus is Lord, they'll live it. I mean, this is what Jesus himself says. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, what? It doesn't say believe. What does it say? Whoever does not, what? obey whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him in other words he's comparing here belief and obedience that true belief will result in what obedience so if someone says they truly believe what will they be doing in their lives they'll be obeying it's in the same way if someone says jesus is lord and they really mean it What will they be doing? They will be living like he is Lord. Hebrews chapter five, verse nine carries this idea along. As Jesus said it, and they're like, it's probably true then. I should probably repeat these things. Hebrews chapter five, verse nine. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who what? Obey him. 
And so what was the famous call that Jesus made to his, to his first disciples? What did he tell them to do? What did, what did Jesus call his first disciples to do? What did he say? Follow me. And what does that follow look like? That following him, as he explains to his disciples, will be a laying down of your life. And, and serving him. That's what following him looks like. So we can all say, yeah, I'm following Jesus. But he says, following me looks like this. We can all say, I believe Jesus. He says, believing is seen in obeying. And we can all say, yeah, I follow Jesus. He's my Lord. And he says, but if you follow him, this is what it looks like. He tells us in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then calling the crowd in with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me. Right, you're all here. You're all listening. You're all my disciples, right? If you really want to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that by the time you get to the early church, they are calling people not just to believe in Jesus, but to believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the Lord. Believe that he is the king. Believe that he is the one you are supposed to lay down your life before. Believe that this is the one that when he says, take up your cross, you say, yes, Lord. And you follow him. So in Acts chapter 16, verse 31 it says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. In fact, the Bible warns us that you need to be on the lookout for people who will try to say that Jesus being the Lord of our life is not actually a necessary part of our salvation. I was going to say, look, there are going to be people who are going to come and who are going to say, yeah, he's your savior, but he doesn't really need to be your Lord. You know, uh, so Jude chapter four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these people creeping in to the church, right? They're not coming in. They're not creeping into the church and saying, let's ditch the Jesus guy and go back to the Baal thing. Right? I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not like, whoa, we didn't notice those people. Okay, we got the cross. We'd also like to set up a high place in here. All right? They're not, they're not doing that. We'd like to set up an idol. What are they doing? They are taking the grace of God, the grace and freedom of faith that it is not about me. I am resting in the work of Christ. And they are making it into sensuality. Live any way you want to and are denying that Jesus is our master and Lord, that he is the one we are supposed to serve, not ourselves, not sin, not Satan. So when we proclaim Jesus as Lord, it is a personal proclamation of obedience, of love and, and, and dedication to the one true God. It is a a declaration, a confession of allegiance to Christ alone. My life belongs to my Lord. And you've got a Lord set up over your life. There is someone who chooses what you do and what you don't do. <laughs> Odds are you, you get that battle every Sunday morning, right? There's someone that 
when the alarm goes off, someone that tells you to hit snooze and someone that tells you to hit amen, uh, that it's Sunday, it's Sunday, and one that tells you it's Sunday, you know, right now. And in a hundred, a thousand different ways in the, in the week, there is someone who determines how you live. There is someone you're following, someone you're serving, someone who is Lord over your life. And when a believer proclaims that Jesus is Lord, they are proclaiming that I am joyously and happily laying down my life in service to him. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to do what? To serve the living and true God. In our lives, we're serving somebody. We're serving something. You may not have an idol set up in your home. But you have someone who is making the choices for your life, someone who is guiding you. Someone whose will you listen to above all others. Sometimes even someone whose will you listen to against what the Lord says and what you know the Lord wants you to do. What Jesus would tell you to do. I would say the Lord, but if you're listening to that, then you're not treating Jesus as the Lord of your life. As Christians, we need to recognize that the very basis of our salvation, the first step of our Christian life is a recognition that Jesus is my Lord, and that can't just come out of my mouth. It must be seen in my life. Or I am no different than the pagans. Of all the rulers and all the authorities in this world, both physical and spiritual, there is one person we give our lives to. And it is the Lord who laid down his life for us. And that's why when we say Jesus is Lord, it is not for the Christians some sort of dour declaration of obedience, but a joyous proclamation of the glory of our Christ. Jesus is Lord, because when we proclaim that, we remember all that it meant in our life when we were serving ourselves and serving sin and all that those masters led us to and how they were pulling us toward death and destruction and unhappiness and everything was ash in our mouth. And when God, by the, by the work of his spirit, opened our eyes to see, no, Jesus is Lord. When that happened, joy sprang for the first time. We saw the world, not as it needed to be, but the world as it really is, that Jesus is Lord. And so just like happened in Thessalonians, we turned to God from these idols to serve the living and true God. So when we say Jesus, Lord, is that personal proclamation, that confession of allegiance to Christ alone, that Jesus, Lord, is not just a statement of fact when you either accept or reject uh, that, that Jesus as Lord is a, is a declaration of how you will live. And so Christian, I mean, what a, what a great time to look at that and say, is that like we would all say Jesus, Lord, but is that how we've been living? You say you've been laying down your life to serve him. Every choice is if your king is looking over your shoulder. 
how you are at work, how you are in the home, what you say to your husband, what you say to your wife, how you treat your kids, everything in light of what does my king want me to do? How would my king have me to handle this? Because he is the Lord of my life. I don't get to choose how I live. I don't get to choose what I do with my time or my money or my home or my stuff. There's one person who does, and I have to listen to him. And if I'm not, then he is not Lord. And if he is not Lord, then I am in trouble. And if he is Lord, then I need to confess my sin and run back to him and make sure that Jesus Lord is not just a proclamation of my mouth, but it is the life that springs from my heart. But the Bible also highlights when it speaks of Jesus, uh, not just as Lord, but as Lord of Lords, right? The, the, The world is, of course, full of Lords. We just talked about it. Full of those who will try to lay some claim of authority on our lives, some more rightly than others. But there is one Lord that even the lords of our lives must bow to, and that is Jesus. He is the one who all people and all lords must ultimately submit to. So when we proclaim Jesus is Lord, there is a recognition that there are other lords, there are others who will vie for our allegiance, but in the end, every other lord in our life will bow the knee to Christ. Jesus is Lord is a, in many ways, a proclamation of war and an assurance of victory. So when it says Jesus is Lord, that is Lord of Lords, that is a promise of victory for the believer. Because when Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament, remember, this is in many ways an, an, an act of invasion. A, a new king is coming to dethrone the principalities and powers and the demons behind all the idols of this world, and they will not willingly give up their authority. That's why when people are like, why would I read the New Testament? Is there all this demon stuff? Uh, And then it kind of peters out. Like, what's going on here? Well, this is part of the reason. And so what happens is the, the various lords of this world make war against the Lord who has come to conquer them who has come to dethrone them. But they will not succeed. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus will show that he is the Lord of Lords, that he will win. So you get to passages like Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. It says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. Why? For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So what happens is the nations made war against the church. I mean, think about it. Like the, the Roman Empire would not easily give up its throne. As what was happening is a new kingdom began to grow in its very midst. One who didn't kneel to Caesar but instead proclaimed a king named Jesus. But they would not succeed. Christ would show that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and the Roman Empire would become but a memory. While Christ's kingdom continued and still continues to advance, and it was Rome that in the end, historically actually bowed the knee to Christ. And Jesus and his church had marched onward over that carcass of the idolatrous Roman Empire. 
Jesus is Lord is something that one day all will have to recognize. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? What do they confess? Of all things, what do they confess? Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Paul says Jesus has a name here greater than all the other names. His lordship is one that all tongues must confess and every knee must and will bow in submission to him alone as Lord. That is going to happen. It is an inevitability. And why is it inevitable? Because God himself said that he's the one who's going to make that happen. Paul's not talking about anything new. Paul's pulling on a promise made in the Old Testament from God himself that he will force these other lords to bend the knee. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this promise. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. One One of, if not the most commonly quoted verses in the New Testament. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So God tells the Lord, the Lord tells the Lord, you sit here while I make your enemies your footstool. Now we know from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, among others, that, that the Lord that God is talking to here is none other than Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2 says this, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So he quotes here from Psalm 110 and says that Lord, that uh, that the Lord is talking to is Jesus Christ. So now look back at Psalm 110. So now that we know this is talking explicitly about Jesus and what the Lord's going to do for his kingdom, look back at Psalm 110. Look at what it says here. God says, wait here, basically while, while I defeat your enemies. And then God gives him power in his scepter and tells him to rule even in what? Even in the midst of his enemies. And he's going to rule even in the midst of his enemies. Now, now Christ's people will willingly submit to that ruling. It says, and they do so in holy garments. This is in, this is in verse 3. But what about those who won't? What he says in verse 5. He will shatter those kings who refuse. He will shatter the chiefs over all the earth. And in doing so, we'll lift up the head of Christ as the true King and Lord. In fact, Jesus 
is Lord like no other. That God shows that Jesus is indeed a, a king with radiance, a glory like no other. He will be seen as Lord of lords because God himself will come, give power in his scepter, and will crush the nations under his feet. And there has been nation and nation trying to stop the spread of the gospel, and none of them have succeeded. In fact, God, in his irony, laughs, and we see it. How does he laugh? Because it is the very persecution of the church that has caused the church to flourish. Look, for example, at Rome. It was the persecution of the Roman Empire that led the, that led the early Christians to experience explode within the empire, and then at the end, the empire itself is bowing the knee to Christ. And it is their dead carcass as the kingdom advances. And it is this glory of Christ. It is a glory like no other Lord. So it's not just that Jesus is Lord of Lords because he's going to win. And he's really like, he's just, he's, he's going to, it's just like brute strength here. You know, this isn't, we, you know, hunger games and Jesus wins out in the end. Uh, He is a Lord unlike any other in terms of his glory and majesty and radiance as well. He is not only the stronger Lord, he is the better Lord. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Listen to what it says here about the Lord of Lords. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So you can see here, like, we should serve Christ. We will serve Christ as Christians in our allegiance to him. We should serve Christ because he's going to win. And now we see we should serve Christ because there's no other Lord that can try and lay claim over your life that is anything like Jesus. He is the only true sovereign. He sits over all kings. He sits over all lords. He reigns over all worthless idols. He alone reigns forever because he is forever. King who is so glorious, a Lord who is so glorious that it's, it's like our, our, our sin-shriveled eyes, you know, can't even look at his full glory. It's like when you've been in the dark and someone flips on the light and it's like blinding. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, do I need to change that light bulb? Why is it so dim? When we've been living in sin to see the glory, and we've, we've been living in sin and looking at these lords, looking at the glory of the lords of this world. And yet when the glory of the one true Lord sits in front of our face, it is too much for us to even begin to look at. So his light is unapproachable. In a world that makes much of its kings. When Caesars are taking titles of glory and splendor. Where our earthly lords were asking to be worshipped as heavenly princes. Which is what was happening in Peter's day. Remember Peter is going to be killed by possibly Nero himself. Who's telling us to, to, to worship him. And, and when, when the nations are doing that. And lords and rulers are calling us to serve them with our lives. Paul reminds us and Peter reminds us 
to call the church to see that there is one Lord who will sit over them all. Jesus. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. But the last thing uh, that we'll see is that Jesus, Lord, is also a proclamation of authority. That Jesus is Lord of all. So the Bible will talk about Jesus being Lord of all. When it's saying that, it is saying this is just a reality. And See, in none of those verses that we looked at, are we making Jesus Lord? And none of them does it say, hey, it is only with, with the Holy Spirit in your heart that you make Jesus Lord. We are simply recognizing and submitting to his lordship or we're living in rebellion to it. We're not making him Lord. He is Lord. But however we respond doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. It's like that, that phrase that has become just weirdly uncommon, like not my president. Remember you know how people say, I don't know if it's a silly thing. I don't know if 2020 killed that too. I don't know. Uh, yeah. What you say whenever the person who's not your, that you didn't vote for gets elected, you just go around saying, well, not my president. Well, except yeah, he is kind of is your president. It's kind of the thing. Like uh, they, they won't go down and go, all right. So who'd you have for number 45 for you? Okay. I'll write that down. Uh, and the world is filled with people saying, not my Lord. Filled with people saying, not my Lord. But yeah, he is. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of all. Jesus is everyone's Lord. And you either submit to him willingly or not. You either live in rebellion to his Lordship or you follow his Lordship. But what you do or don't do does not affect the reality of whether or not Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of all all the question is whether we're accepting that whether we're submitting to that rejoicing in that or living in rebellion to the one true lord and so the bible is clear this jesus is lord is is not just a willing thing that he is lord of all now the the world likes to make distinctions about who rules whom But Jesus tells us he is Lord of all, not just of the Jews, but Lord of the Jew and Gentile, the Lord of every nation. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. So Peter opened his mouth and said, saying Peter wrote this letter, right? Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So Jew, Gentile, every nation, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He shows no partiality. You submit to that lordship and you will find what? Peace. You submit to his lordship. You don't go, ugh. You know, remember remember what was happening uh, like in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel was moving toward the promised land and getting into the promised land, they were looking at the God of the Israelites and the people were like, ah, oh, their God is very strong. Uh, we got to do something because their God's going to beat our gods that we know aren't even real. 
Uh, so what he's saying here is that it's not just the God of the Jews that's sort of going to go through. Uh, he is Lord of all. And if you submit to him, if you lay down your life in submission, he shows no partiality. You will find the good news of peace in that Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Well, what does Peter say in Acts chapter 2, verse 36? As that famous sermon at Pentecost, right? He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, what is he saying in that? We got to remember, again, this is that sermon at Pentecost. He's, he's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Uh, but what was going on when he proclaims that this Jesus is Lord here at the end of this sermon? Remember back in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, he tells us that listening to this are devout men from every nation under heaven. Listening to these words. He, he tells us in Acts chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 that there are people from all over the world here listening to this sermon. You've got Parthians and Medes, Elamites. You've got residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So that's what's happening at Pentecost. All these people are here. They're all hearing uh, these things from the Lord as these tongues are allowing the message of the gospel to go out. And what? The message of the gospel is going out in every tongue. And it's in the midst of that mixed multitude that Peter says, this Jesus is Lord of all. And how he's going to need to remind the Jews of that again later. Kind of needs to remind himself of that again later. And so when Paul takes the gospel to the Romans, he highlights that Jesus is the Lord of everyone. Romans chapter 10 verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So here again, we see Jesus is Lord of all, but he rewards those who recognize his lordship. He doesn't reward those who just make him Lord. He says, look, I'm, I am Lord. And just like every other king, when you serve the true king, there are rewards in that service. Doesn't mean he's not the Lord of the others. They're just living in rebellion. He bestows riches on those who call on him. In fact, it is this confidence of his lordship that, that Jesus gives his disciples in the Great Commission. I mean, what does Matthew 28, 18 to 20 say? We, so we often skip down to verse 19, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But what does he say in verse 18? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. In other words, you go and you make disciples based on verse 18. And you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, all authority is his. Authority in heaven, authority on earth. It has been given to him. And then everything that follows in the Great Commission is built off of that reality. So he says, so go and tell the world. Tell them to submit to him. Make disciples of all nations. Why? Because he is the Lord of all nations. And you teach them to do 
what? You teach them to submit to him, to obey him, to obey all that he commands. In our world, this is where Christians, I think, sometimes get it wrong. We need to have more of an apologetics without apology sort of thing. In our world, Jesus is an advertiser. He's not a, he's not a salesman. He's not out there trying to convince you, you know, that, that you know, he's not, he's not just some guy giving an infomercial, hoping that you'll be willing to make three payments of your life or something like that. Jesus is proclaiming his authority over everyone. He is Lord. Our job is to show them the joy of life lived under the true king. And to call them to a king that saves them, even though they had been living in rebellion to him. But no matter what you say, no matter how you vote in that election, he is your Lord and one day you will meet him. Either as a loyal subject, as a loving servant, or as a lifelong rebel. But either way, Jesus is Lord. It's funny that everything swings on those words. It's funny that those would be so foundational for Paul to say. I mean, this claim that Jesus is Lord, we've got to understand in Scripture, this is no small claim. For God to say of all things to list of what someone can only say by the Holy Spirit, of all things for him to say, you can only say this by the power of the Spirit for him to say, Jesus is Lord. God is recognizing it is no small claim for you to be able to say, Jesus is Lord. And you know what's funny? The world recognizes it too. The year is A.D. 155. A man of God by the name of Polycarp is brought to Roman authorities. Now, Polycarp, he's probably 86 or 87 years old. Pretty amazing at that time to be living that long. He is a disciple of John. He's been made the bishop of the church at Smyrna. His crime, he refuses to worship the emperor. And so Polycarp, this 86, 87-year-old man, is brought to the stadium, right? That's where you bring the Christians. And the blood of his brothers and sisters, in some cases, they're burning. Corpses are still there, wetting the sand, uh, uh, filling up the firewood. But no one wants to murder an old man. Not even the Romans. And so all he had to do all he had to do to escape the fire was one phrase. And it's amazing how much this phrase parallels that a scripture. All he had to say was Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to say. Yet that old man would not waver. They threatened him. They threatened him with wild beasts. They threatened him with fire. And he still refused. All he had to do is say Caesar is Lord. And so this old man trained under the apostle John, who they've got stories how he would sit around and tell, tell his disciples the stories that John told him about what he saw Jesus do. Remember that the next time you read 1 John. 
he would tell them about the guy who taught me. He was there. He saw the life of Jesus. And this is what he saw. And they would, people would sit at the feet of this old man recounting the tales of those who had been with the Christ. Who had seen Jesus in the flesh and then again in the flesh. That old man is tied to a cross and then set ablaze. But his body won't burn. And so they stab him in frustration. And then when he lays dead, the crowds who are amazed by this and scared, they're afraid of what they saw and what this story is going to become. So they say, burn the body now. And they finally burn his body till only the bones remained. We got to get rid of this guy. Why? All because he wouldn't say the words. Why? Why not just say the words? And really, why kill a man when he won't? Because who is Lord matters. The world knows that these aren't just words. That these are a confession, a promise, a proclamation of war, a dethroning, an invasion, a kingdom that is coming and cannot be stopped. And hell is attempting to shut its gates. Not just to keep the kingdom from coming in. Because its citizens are flowing out to follow the one true king. And the line from that city is glorious. Let's pray. As we bow our heads, let's remember that we were once citizens behind those gates of hell. Worshiping lords that were not lords, giving our lives to things that would kill us. That made promises they could not keep, that they never intended to keep, and still now are trying to whisper to us and to gain our life and allegiance anew. But we know who is Lord. And so we confess Jesus is Lord. What is so glorious behind those words? What is so glorious that, that, that the Lord can say those words, Jesus is Lord, can only be said by the Spirit. And where the world is wanting us to cast off those and say anything else is Lord. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, we confess the glory of our Lord. The glory of a king that doesn't ask for our lives. He is a king that gives his life and we willingly serve him in the eternal life that he has purchased for us. When we say Jesus, Lord, we promise that his glory will shine for all to see. He is the Lord of lords. Whatever Lord or king we are trusting in will one day bow down to him. So why serve that king that will fall like Dagon? toppled before the one true king. And we say Jesus is Lord because we proclaim his glory to a world that is his. And this time, it is Zion that is marching out to reclaim the world. And what song is on our lips? Glory. Glory. Hallelujah. Father, we come to you today 
And we know we could not say the words, Jesus is Lord, without your spirit pulling us out of our citizenship of the damned and giving us new life in the Son. So we give glory to you for your glorious rescue and glory to Christ who is the Lord, who reigns, who is sitting at your right hand as you make all his enemies his footstool and we wait for the last enemy to be defeated, which is death. But he is Lord. And oh, what joy that he is Lord of our lives to know that we would serve things that were not glorious and that we now get to serve the one true Lord of lords and King of kings who promises peace to his people. A king that we do not have to prop up, a Lord that we do not have to craft ourselves or carve from wood or stone or dreams but one who reigns above us and for us. And so we give glory to you, O Christ. We lift up the name of Jesus and we will proclaim his name in this world. We will call them to bow the knee May they see us bowing the knee as well. May they see us living for a king, for a Lord that is truly glorious. It is in that Christ's name that I pray. Amen.